Have you ever wondered why we make fun of the gharjamai? What does domestic democracy mean? And what does it mean for heterosexual men to support the cause of gender equality? Hi, this is Shrishti and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society and culture. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from November 2020 when we spoke to sociologist Radhika Chopra. We sort of wanted to ask you about this idea of veiling um, and it's something that's usually associated with women, but you wrote about how veiling has masculine and feminine forms. So could you tell us a little bit about this and how is veiling experienced in dual gendered ways, so to speak, to quote you, and how does it impact men? Uh, You know, one of the um, aspects about South Asia is that we've often been clubbed along with or classed along with uh, what are called parda observing societies and our societies and cultures that are parda um, structured around the idea and the conceptualization of parda or the veil. Um, And it's interesting that the moment you position it as the notion of parda, uh, though the evocative figure is usually that of the woman, But precisely because it is a normative cultural uh, form, um, men are not, as it were, immune from parda practices, in a sense. So if we, uh, however, it plays out differently between men and women in the sense that uh, men may not necessarily obviously observe clothing, uh, which is... um, as dramatic or as visible perhaps as women do. But uh, in fact, if you look a little more closely at sartorial styles, even within South Asia of men and the use of the turban, particularly where a turban has a a tail to it, you know, has a piece of cloth that hangs uh, on on its side, you'll see how men actually use it very interestingly, sometimes to cover their mouths or Uh, even up to their nose and uh, so on and so forth. So there is a sense in which um, veiling practices even via clothing or pieces of cloth enter into men's repertoire of uh, dress and expressing through that clothing the idea of distance between the speaker and uh, whom he is speaking to uh, they uh, is signal, if you will, they give off messages, this piece of cloth. Um, rather like the dupatta, if you think about the dupatta, the chunni, the orni, the way that it uh, it's played around with uh, by women, that, you know, sometimes it's fully covering the face, sometimes it's only up to the forehead, sometimes it slips back and shows hair and so on. Men's cloth, uh, turban cloth in particular, plays into that kind of uh, repertoire as well. So sometimes there's a signal of hierarchy between the person who will not be seen and cannot be seen by just anyone. So sometimes male wailing styles actually express power rather than powerlessness. 
And in fact, when you think about architecture, when you think about uh, uh, physical distance, when you think about space and distance and so on, um, I think our political leadership, for example, really adopts and is rooted in uh, notions of veiling distance and hierarchy. You can't easily see the speaker, the leader, even at the most public of occasions, like let us say Republic Day or uh, Independence Day, when they are speaking from the ramparts and are supposed to be so visible. In fact, there are so many layers of being hidden behind, of being hidden uh, protective by different kinds of physical and uh, distant spatial um, layers. Um, so, so it's interesting to me how uh, power becomes translated into uh, a form of wailing. At the same time, it's not only that male forms of wailing are about power and female forms are about powerlessness. That's not the equation at all. Because uh, if you look across hierarchies of uh, uh, different kinds of men, and especially class distinctions, um, lower class distinctions and lower caste distinctions that men, uh, I mean, lower caste men um, occupy and um, are the subalterns within. Um, you do see how uh, Parda practices come in through the way in which the eyes are used or the voice is used. So you don't speak loudly in front of a superior or a hierarchically uh, powerful person in a very loud voice. You mute your voice. So there's avas ka parda, or the voice which is veiled. And equally, uh, you do not exchange glances with somebody or look somebody who is more powerful than you directly in the eye. The ank me ank, uh, Milana, the idea of uh, exchanging looks because you are an equal is in fact taken the uh, red when uh, uh, you are powerless or uh, less powerful, you veil the eyes, you drop your lids and you look down. There's a downcast eyes, the nazar kaparda, which is also part of uh, male veiling styles. So I think this is, uh, and you know, what's interesting to me is how um, it's universally recognized across South Asian cultures, that uh, whether you are a follower of uh, one religious practice or uh, part of one region or another, the way in which the body um, practices, the bodily forms of expression, if you will, are readily understood in these terms, power, powerlessness, hierarchies, subalternness, uh, men, women, and distance, and so on, nearness and proximity. All of this actually comes into play, not just vis-a-vis -vis women, but is very much a part of masculine practices as well. And well understood. Culturally, this is a repertoire that we know. It's a language we know very well, and we literally hear it and speak it very fluently. Just to elaborate on one small, small aspect, you know, um, if you think about uh, the way that um, 
such an important building that used to be part of, let's say, Delhi's landscape, the Lal Kila or the Kila Mubarak, um, the place where the king's throne was placed. The king was at uh, the throne is at a height. Uh, the throne place itself is ringed around by a small sort of gold railing. The king sat there on his gaddi, but surrounding him, standing around him, as it were, almost like a protective layer, were his sons or those who were really close to him. Uh, nobody could approach him easily. There had to be a sort of, you had to be guided to that place. To, and then whatever you had to proffer, whatever you had to give, you had to give upwards. You, with your downcast eyes, you, you offered your petition upwards or your gift or whatever it was. Um, and nobody could look the king in the eye very easily. So, of course, the king was powerful. But the king, as powerful, also needed the protection of these serried forms of veiling. And we can't only leave it in the medieval past that, you know, the Kila Mubarak is part of a medieval history. In fact, when you see the prime minister in front of the ramparts of the Lal Kila, that's exactly the, the structure of the throne, the distance, the veil of that plastic in front of him and the, uh, you know, the group of uh, gun-toting soldiers around. It's, it's stunning how that uh, medieval form is replicated in the modern moment. Absolutely. Um, and it's very interesting, this idea of like hierarchies and honor and power and, and how we see um, all of these sort of coming together to form this idea of veiling um, across genders. But what would you say makes it different or what would you say makes veiling such a contested issue when it comes to women or, or through this, are you arguing that we need to expand the way in which we look at the idea of veiling itself? Um, I think we need to expand the idea of how we look at veiling because um, I remember a long time ago when I was first sort of thinking around this issue of uh, the male veil. Um, and I began speaking about it and women who were in the audience who were fully in hijab or observing forms of hijab, um, completely contested my formulation, my completely incorrect formulation at the time, that women's veiling was expressive of their powerlessness. And uh, the reason I had sort of taken this position is because right up to the late night, uh, about the 1990s, the writing on veiling was how veiling was a sign of uh, the powerlessness of women in societies where veiling is observed. And this was particularly uh, addressed towards Islamic societies that, you know, women had no rights, that it had a totally powerless position uh, in Islamic societies. And the sign of that powerlessness was the adoption of the chadar, the uh, hijab, uh, the face veil, and so on and so forth. And this group of women just completely contested my formula or my adoption of that position, saying that. Uh, this is our choice. This is our right to express piety and belonging to a particular religious 
form or adoption of a religious form that's our choice it's in our hands and the very uh, the very uh, notion that choice itself is a sign of liberation is a sign of rights and the right to claim rights um, that's what they were saying to me and so this idea that you know women are uh, women's veiling is about powerlessness male veiling is about power uh, immediately showed me that look we need to really readdress what veiling and how we understand veiling as practice as structure and as relationships social and political and cultural relationships so yes we definitely need to expand how we think of veiling and i mean expand it in a huge set of different ways after all why are we uh, thinking about veiling only as clothing there is the veiling that is expressed through architecture through space uh, through movements in space through avoidance behavior and gestures um, but uh, uh, veiling is also about modernity, power, leadership, and so on. So yes, I think we really need to relook at what the veil is. Absolutely. I think that's fascinating and definitely something for all of us to think about and engage with. And you know, you sort of started, um, it's very interesting that we started with this idea of veiling and you started off by talking about how you specifically looked at, um, you know, masculinities in the South Asian context. Could you talk a little bit about what you'd say the defining characteristics of masculinity in South Asia are? And, you know, you've written about this shifting context of South Asia. If you could tell us about that a little bit and what it means to be a man in this shifting context. Yeah, so um, I think that uh, sometimes uh, we get caught in rather large omnibus kind of terms, like, for example, South Asia. Um, and it seems to me that uh, uh, because we use them, we also eclipse the particularities of place and the particularities of uh, uh, ways of being in the world, whatever it is. And I think one of the key ways of being in the world is whether or not you have resources and whether or not uh, or whether you don't you know that's a key division in south asia and i think it is a stark real embedded distinct uh, difference that really informs so many lives in south asia so in fact if there is a defining thing that uh, that brings south asia together it is the idea that so a majority of people are literally on the edge of uh, being able to reproduce their lives, to be able to uh, lay claim, forget about rights in the political domain, I mean just everyday forms of life, whether they can ensure their everyday life in a secure way. So I think one of the things that um, uh, being male in South Asia is, uh, or being masculine in South Asia, must deal with this class or 
divisions of security and insecurity in everyday life. The, uh, that's, that's an absolute key and you can't get away from it. So depending on where you are in this overall structure of uh, uh, security and um, everyday life, I think that uh, for most people who are, who are absolutely secure, for men and women, but for men, uh, certainly, the idea that security is also able to be expressed in the way that they value family and they put forward what they call family values as a key form of their uh, identity and their social persona and who they are and so on and so forth. So the idea that you can have a family that you can lay a, uh, claim to a family that stretched back into the past, that you know who they are, that there's, they're documented, they're known, um, you inherit things from them, they're materially around you even when the person is no longer there, etc. in the things that's around you and the things that you will pass on into the future. So that family and inheritance and materiality of the family is very much a part of being secure in South Asia. And therefore, the idea that men are family minded or whose identities are located within the family, it's very true of uh, men in South Asia but it's very true of men who are secure. Uh, men whose livelihoods, whose cultural uh, uh, capital, whose social and cultural capital is absolutely secure and uncontested almost. You know, they can bank on it, literally. Um, on the other hand, on the other side of the divide, uh, a man who has no such security that even the family within which he will reside for the entire course of his single biographical life will remain the same. So who is his family? We, he may not know because the very aspect of having to earn and live and survive means that he has to move. That mobility and migration are built into that biography. So the biography of, insecure, of insecurity is really the biography of mobility and migration. So who you can count on, who you can bank on, who you can count as close and intimate and who will help and be supportive and so on, it does not remain the same throughout a single person's life. So the expression of family is really an expression that is an open-ended thing for those who are insecure let me just give you a very small example some years ago there was this um, uh, dramatic instance where uh, a man and his uh, the person who worked in his house um, uh, they, uh, their home was found to be full of the corpses and bones of children. Uh, this was the Nathari murders. I don't know if you recall them, but uh, it was some, uh, you know, 12 years, 15 years ago, something like that. I can't remember the exact period. I should, but I've forgotten it. Um, now, 
so, I mean, these two men were sort of held up as, you know, literally in a kind of cannibalist mode, in a, uh, you know, abductors, as uh, so on and so forth. The question that struck a few of us when reading about these um, murders and the discovery of these corpses is that how come nobody missed these children? Um, and if they did, who followed up on those missing children? And then, of course, we realized that these are children of families or clusters of migrants whose movement is so, um, whose, whose lives are so full of movement that who is there at any particular moment of time in the day is completely uncertain. So where is, uh, you know, uh, Chota Papu at uh, 3 p.m. in the afternoon? Well, nobody really needs to know. Nobody knows and doesn't need to know or need to stand guarantee for Chota Papu being there at 3 p.m. So the fact that he has disappeared and is unknown for such a long period of time just shows us how what is family itself is sort of open to question. And what is it that a man at that level, a migrant man, is trying to protect? Is he trying to protect whose life? His family? But what is that? You know, who's, who's his family? Where is it? Um, so uh, if we think about South Asia, I think that Yes, family values, we do seem to emphasize that family is a very major uh, cultural construct within which people find and through which people express their cultural location, their uh, sense of who they are, the identities that they want to be known by. And yet there's this whole swathe of people for whom the family is just isn't there in the way that we presume it to be there or we think it should be there it's it's really interesting when we think of south asia as a whole about like these defining characteristics and how this idea of family values also gets divided along the main lines of what you'd said at the start which is whether you have resources or not um yeah. and i think one thing that you started this off with was that it's so difficult to make like a, a generalization about you know, masculinities overall, especially for South Asia. So I think specifically speaking about one particular figure and masculinity in that context that you looked at extensively is the figure of the um, quote-unquote house husband. So yeah. could you tell us a little bit about how is this figure of the house husband lampooned in popular culture? And what does our understanding of economically dependent husband husbands tell us about mainstream and marginal masculinities in India. Right, right. Yeah. So um, again, I think, you know, um, uh, we use uh, the, the term house husband. Uh, it's actually a rather loose translation from a more Western context where uh, the notion that um, uh, the wife and husband, the conjugal pair, the pair of the wife and the husband are the key pair that define her as the wife and him as the husband. And that's the pair and identity that we need to know of. But in the instance of South Asia, well, let me put it like this. Again, in the context of particularly the northern uh, 
and stretching somewhat into the east um, up to uh, Bihar uh, and somewhat in Bengal as well. Um, the idea that the uh, man does not move out of his paternal home and it's the woman who leaves her paternal home, her father's house to move into her husband's house. And that's the uh, context in which the idea of the Gharjavai emerges. Uh, because we know that this is not the practice. So for example, in uh, parts of uh, uh, South India, where a different form of marriage practices uh, pertain, and this movement is not uh, the same. But uh, the Gharjavai is the person who moves from his father's house to his father-in-law's house. So the correct translation in a way of the Gharjavai is dependent son-in-law rather than house husband, because the wife is not in charge of that house either. It's her father. And this wrongness, uh, the fact that he is dependent upon his father-in-law rather than his father, it's a kind of a double whammy uh, type of uh, situation where the move by this young man is expressive of both his subjugation, uh, lower position within his father-in-law's house, and that of his own father who has let his son go into this in this inappropriate movement, in this reversal of movement. So it's a it's a double masculinity, which or, or the the masculinity of two men which actually is entailed, which is actually um, constrained or subjugated in this move of one man. Um, and it has been not lampooned so much in um, things like um, cartoons and so on, where in the West, for example, the house husband his, has been extensively um, you know, lampooned in cartoon as a cartoon figure and in cartoons and things. Not so much in India and South Asia. Here, um, it's the moving image, the the narrative of film that really positions the house husband as, or the Gharjavai, the living son-in-law, as the very problematic and uh, somewhat therefore. Um, ambiguous characters, sometimes played up in a very funny way, extreme funniness, uh, but um, also lampooned, uh, therefore, in that uh, position. Yeah. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the difference between the Western context and the South Asian context is that the house husband also presumes a powerful wife that he's dependent on the wife. In the Indian context, that is not so at all. It's the wife is not a powerful figure in her, uh, in the house. Um, so in a sense, the Gharjavai of South Asia expresses a relationship between men, the powerful man and the less powerful man. So it is still a conversation, still a dialogue between men, not men and women. So it's still intragender, if you will. That's fascinating to actually think of the difference between the house husband and the Ghajavai in the South Asian context. 
and sort of um, in a related realm and again related to the main thing that you'd highlighted at the start about you know the centrality of of the family and familial roles mm-hmm. to uh, masculinity in South Asia mm-hmm. um, and you've written about how you know we've often outlined women's oppression in the roles that they play in households and and in their familial roles but how do we understand men's role within these familial structures and why do we need to pay attention to the role that they play with respect to uh, gender equality within households or what you've called domestic democracy why is it important to pay attention to that well i think uh, again uh, coming back to india and south asia and uh, um the particularities that some of the uh, you know that the cultures here throw up the distinctions and differences that the cultures here throw up i think that one of the uh, differences that we observe is the difference of seniority and um, the junior and age so at one level um age has a lot to do with how uh, what are the key players within a household structure and therefore who are if you will the ones who with whom a kind of relationship of gender equality can be drawn or can be fruitful if if at all there is a possibility of that um, now it's interesting that actually for a number of different kinds of um, things um different uh male uh, different family uh, roles play out differently so for example the father of a daughter who might want to educate his daughter may be really a supportive person whereas a supportive man towards his uh, daughter's life uh, and her education and uh, you know improvement and so on and so forth whereas her husband may be less inclined so it's not men in the family as a unitary block that we need to look at we actually need to make the nuanced distinctions about who is more supportive or less so towards certain kinds of things um now uh, it's also true to say that actually when uh, women have started uh, small um, uh, businesses and they become let's say women uh, entrepreneurs have often engaged and employed uh, some men in their families as their um, you know to help them and support them and be their i mean she's the boss uh, in that circumstance of that enterprise but who does she employ it's quite interesting she may well employ her son her brother in law but may not actually employ her father her father in law or indeed her husband sometimes so even from the perspective of women with whom this sense of uh, equality can be a possibility can be a potential really varies with what the roles are within the family um and i think that in terms of sort of caricature and uh, uh, the kind of lampooning that uh, does happen one of the pairing of equality and um, exchange relations is between 
the bhabhi and the deva right i mean it's a it's a big uh, it's part of song it's part of uh, uh, funny uh, moments and item numbers and so on in in uh, bollywood cinema uh, and you can see that it's not the husband but the husband's younger brother who has this potential uh, relationship of friendship with the incoming wife with the bhabhi so it's um, she's the elder woman but uh, you know at the same time she's not the mother and uh, you know she doesn't have that same kind of power over this young man as the mother may or an elder sister or something like that so it's a it's an interesting um, set of relations that one sees within the family vis-a-vis -vis gender relations and i think that um, uh, in the course of research in different forms and different moments uh, in my own research career around masculinity one of the things that we did i did find uh, was the fact that um, for women the mother-in-law and the father-in-law and the husband are the least likely potential people with whom they can uh, express their trouble, before whom they can express trouble or uh, with whom they can have any relationships of um, uh, whom they can draw on for the kind of support that they feel they need at any at any time. So again, age intersects in that uh, context and it's the younger men who become much more available as a supportive group within the family for women. That's fascinating. And I think it's especially fascinating to think about, like you said, this idea of, say, just look at the Bhabhi Deva relationship and the way we've seen it play out in pop culture. So even the relationship of friendship can only be with the younger brother of the husband yes. and not really the husband. Would you say that this kind of um, hierarchy within the family, do you think that that plays um, impacts this idea of gender equality or women's oppression within the family doubly? Would you say that, the, that it bears down um, additionally on women, women or would that be a difficult assessment to make? I, I would hesitate to make it as a sort of blanket statement, as a sort of, uh, you know, a sort of complete statement closed within itself, because I think there are different ways in which both the aspects of oppression as well as the expressions of support play out. And I think one of the things we have not actually done too well um, in here in India, or uh, indeed, I think South Asia, certainly, um, we haven't looked at, we have not mapped, we have not uh, put into place an understanding of what the supportive structures, of what the supportive relations that men can offer or do offer is. So we haven't really done too much work on what is the nature of uh, support that men can or do offer. So, um, uh, you know, um, I think about it and I say to myself, in the last few years, we've been, uh, you know, literally, uh, it's violence against women is in our face. I mean, and real extreme reported uh, unimaginable violence, literally has been uh, part of our landscape, our social landscape now. 
Um, and I and I wonder that you know, is it uh, what happens in uh, through events like this? Is the kind of dichotomies uh, that get created between genders, men women versus women, women versus men, kind of thing? Uh, the kind of generalizations that we make that, you know, men are violent and women are uh, raped. Um, what we haven't actually thought about even, we, ha we haven't even imagined the possibility uh, of people who, who are men who can step forward or in instances of, of assault or harassment or molestation, have any men stepped forward and tried to help and stop that molestation? Have any of them tried to, uh, you know, intervene in an instance, whether it's a street side thing or uh, within the family or whatever? We we don't have that history. We don't have that documentation. We don't have that archive. And because we are missing that uh archive we really have no knowledge about what support may mean what male support may mean for women in issues of trauma and uh, molestation we also haven't tried to imagine new institutional formations that actually would engender that support that would enable that support to come forward so if i were just to think about it and think to myself that you know uh, we've been very good with things like, let's say, establishing uh, shelters for women, abuse uh, for uh, women who've been abused and sort of shelter homes and uh, uh, supportive practice, societal, institutional, governmental supportive practices towards women. Um, uh, in the West, uh, the idea of the rape counseling centers and so on now, of course, dispersed into police stations and so, so forth, is also part of an institutionalized support uh, that is offered in, in moments of rape. But you begin to wonder, I mean, has nobody, why is it that nobody has really thought to try and bring supportive men into the picture or ask them to set up rape counseling centers in which they as supportive men might actually enable women to overcome trauma and to make society aware of the fact of what uh, you know um, safe masculinity is uh, what is uh, enabling masculinity pro-feminist masculinity if you will and so on so the work towards trying to even see and know what exists as support what exists as, as male support towards gender equality we don't really have a lot of that work with it's sort of everybody cites it as something like which would be a really good thing to do but it's not yet been done um, secondly there has been no institutionalization no effort at imagining new kinds of institutions that could come into play, that could in fact be uh, quite um, important ways in which violence against women does get addressed, but in a wholly different innovative uh, um, paradigm under a new form of thinking. So it would involve men, it would bring men into the picture, it would involve men thinking about what support should be offered, what's the best way forward, 
in even trying to create conversations between themselves and therefore between themselves and women. Um, so that uh, that's an effort that I think really it needs to be made. It just has to happen. Absolutely. I think it's so important and it's definitely the need of the hour to do some innovative thinking around this yeah. instead of, I think, being often a bit exclusionary and alienating in the ways in which we implement reform um, a lot of the times. I think for the last question, which really sort of picks up from, you know, what you were talking about, the role that men can play. Uh, when it comes to gender equality and how we haven't looked at that enough. So one of the things that you've looked at is this idea of um, pro-feminist masculinities mm -hmm. and the kind of tensions that they produce. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about that a little bit and what does it mean for heterosexual men to uh, support the cause of gender equality? Well, as I said, I think that... Uh the effort of that support for gender equality um, by, interestingly, yes, as you say, heterosexual men in particular, because, I mean, we almost presume that those who are, uh, you know, not uh, heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual are much more supportive of uh, gender equality. I mean, we almost presume that we take that almost like a given, yeah? Um, I think that uh, there is a sense in which we need to, as I said, uncover those histories of uh, uh, support, either through uh, bio biographical writings or uh, through just the documentation of uh, or how ordinary men actually did step forward to, uh, you know, help somebody uh, um, uh, sort of, you know, gender tense uh, situation um, to, you know, to be overcome or uh, help women in a situation like that. And I'm sure you and I know lots of men who have actually done this. Right, who've also been uh, been there, if you will, or with whom we feel safe, or with whom upon whom we will rely. And I say to myself, well, why haven't we reflected on what that feeling safe means, and why have we not discussed that with men? Uh, you know, why is it that I feel safe with you? What do you think you are doing? to make me feel safe. But, so that in posing that question, there's a sort of counter reflection being offered to the man to think about what does it mean to, for me to be a safe man? What does my repertoire of signals, it's not just about Pardai, right? It's also about uh, being uh, communicating the idea of who I am as a, as a man with whom you can safely walk down the street. Why is it that we are not even offering that as a moment of reflection by men on men and on masculinity? So I think we haven't done all our homework either. We haven't uh, you know, asked the questions that perhaps we should be asking or we can be asking. And that's the note we ended our conversation with Professor Radhika on. This conversation gave us a lot to think about in terms of rethinking ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a man. We hope it did the same for you. We release a new episode of this podcast series every Monday. 
so be sure to tune in this podcast is brought to you by ts studios the production company that brings the swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films 